Chapter Forty of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty. Amy next day contrived to shut herself off from every form of disagreeable communication by fainting directly after breakfast. She was in the library where she had gone to ask Mister Dant for a book. He had, however, already started for church, but his secretary was there. And it was Mr. Johnson who caught the tottering woman and carried her to the sofa and fetched Mrs. Dan's nurse. The nurse brought Amy round, drew a rug over her, and recommended her to lie still till lunch time. Amy was not unwilling; she was extraordinarily, unaccountably tired, and was glad enough to lie there alone in a dream of peace. Mr. Johnson had departed, full of kind solicitude, and left her free of the room. She felt reassured. The bride, if she had attempted to make mischief, had possibly not succeeded in impressing her husband with the truth of her story. Mr. Johnson was her friend. He had not tried so far to unseat her at Swarland. He probably would go on letting her alone. She must be civil to Melisande for his sake. She forgot that, as a matter of fact, she had given the secretary no opportunity of speaking to her. She had fainted the minute she got into the room. She slept for a couple of hours and was awakened by the grind of the motor on the gravel outside and the entrance of the church party into the room. The two old ladies and Dulce, followed by Mister Dand and Missus Johnson, the three women uttered the usual exclamations. Even Missus Johnson made some conventional expression of sympathy. Mister Dand, having condoled. Left the room after one intent glance at the recumbent figure of Amy, who made a sign to Dulce. Dulce bent down and listened. She had seen Mrs. Johnson's ugly glare of dislike and was not surprised at the nature of the request that Amy whispered to her. "Get that woman out of the room, can't you?" Now we'll leave her," said Mrs. Dickinson aloud, waving her arms with the air of a housewife scattering a pecking brood of chickens. The nurse said Miss Stevens was to be left alone, so hadn't we all better go and get our outdoor things off? I'll come back to you, dear, as soon as I have chivied them off to their rooms. She whispered. Thank you, Amy said in a low voice. I'm going," said old Mrs. Bowman. After I have kissed dear Amy, the old woman stooped and performed the loving act, and then Lady Medrow, not to be outdone, swooped gracefully and followed her example. Ta ta," said Dulce, the last of the file. "I say, Amy, I wish you had seen the bride's face when all the mothers cuddled you. It expressed envy, hatred, and malice, and all the bad passions she has only just got back from praying against. Well, I'll go and get my hat off and come back and sit with you." She reached the door and met her father just returning. He had heard her last words and framed his rejoinder on them. "No, Dulce, don't come back just yet." I want to speak to Amy. He closed the door. Amy was looking at him. You are perfectly happy now, she remarked. Now that you have got your dear Johnson back again, don't be spiteful, dear. It isn't like you to wish to deny me any innocent pleasure, at least. Besides, you yourself begged me to send for him and his wife, whom, by the way, I could do very well without. Husband and wife are one flesh," said Amy. But I do hope they are not too united a couple. Why do you hope so? He seemed preoccupied. Because she hates me, 
and she may be able to persuade him to do me an injury. Poor child, you are very vulnerable, but never mind the Johnsons, they're only malice in a small way. It is fate that's against you. Jeremy, that woman saw me at Blois. Well, you must bluff her. I did. Bluff again. And if that fails? I suppose you will have to go, he said with a strange calmness. Of course, it would be impossible for me to stay then. If I must, I must, but I am not intending to let things go so easily, I assure you. I am more than ever determined to stay, now that I have made good my footing here once more. I am getting to be happy again. You are, Faye, my dear. Haven't you felt misfortune coming nearer? No, for it isn't. Misfortune isn't coming, she cried urgently. Oh, Jeremy, why do you try to frighten me? They never all loved me more. I am like a sister to Edith and a daughter to your mother. Is it wrong? Love can never be wrong. It is an end in itself. Sit down. You look so uncomfortable standing over me. Did you see the old ladies kiss me? They wouldn't if they knew. No, but surely it isn't my business to tell them. Need they know that I once made an awful mistake, that I have wiped out by sheer hard work in their service? Haven't I? Do you really think it mean of me to let them kiss me? I won't if you had rather not. It is no particular pleasure to me, except for what it symbolizes. Jeremy, your looks are dreadful to me. Perhaps in your heart of hearts you think I ought to go. I always did think so, dear. When you say dear, I know there is something that disturbs you at the very least. You never show me any signs of affection when things are going right. Jeremy, don't you want me to show fight to that medieval miss? Or is it that you have got your dear Johnson back and don't care for me to stay any more? If you don't, say so, and I'll not bother to fight him. The Johnson part of it has not the slightest importance. But this time there is a woman in it, and if he splits it will be to them all. The first time didn't matter so much, it was only to you. Didn't matter. It set the whole hideous ball a-rolling. It has rolled up now to such a pitch of misery and horror. On my soul, I don't know what to do. He walked across to the other side of the room and poured himself out a tumbler full of brandy. What are you doing that for? she exclaimed, raising herself. Lie still, love. Have you ever seen me drunk? He returned the bottle to its place, and coming back to Amy, sat down and took her hand. Who knows, dearest? It may not be so bad as I think. Taking your very peculiar character into consideration, it may be the means of regeneration for us. All's well that ends well. Perhaps you will be flung back to me willy-nilly, for you will certainly have to leave this, and I shall go with you. She sat bolt upright. Not at all. Don't flatter yourself. If I am to go, I shall go quietly. You may be sure of that, but no recommendations to mercy. I am old enough to know what I am doing. Neither you nor anyone else will know where to find me. I promised Edith. We once had it all out together. Your happy home shall not be broken up for me. I shall take care to destroy all the clues, or no, I shall throw myself on your honour, and you will not persist in seeking me. You are a gentleman, after all, and I once thought I loved you. I even told you that I did, like a fool, 
and I ran away with you. It was a false move, and I came back. And you were quite good then. You realized that I should never be anything to you any more. Never, never. You kissed me for the last time that night in the parlor, at Blois. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. What a kiss it was. Yes, because it had finality in it. The last kiss, the end paper, fini, like in Durer's picture, with all the sand run out of the hourglass, and the clock stopped, and the broken stones lying about. But I am not melancholia. I am courage. Yes, you are. Lie down. He bent her body down arbitrarily on the couch. Rest, but talk. I want to hear you. You will never speak like this again. Explain yourself and the workings of your poor little mind to me, who love you once for all. Oh, don't laugh at me. Understand me. Jeremy, you know me. No, you don't. Listen, I am not vile. You could not have loved me if I had been any other sort of woman. I suppose I have sinned against light, but then I never saw the light. I was always utterly uninspired. I read a lot of poetry now, to show me things I never dreamed of, and poetry tells me I am not vile. Yes, and you have reproached me and looked grim at me for the callousness and coarseness of my attitude in this house, but don't you see, it was the only way. I could not stay in it unless I firmly refused to be anything more to you than your housekeeper. I have not dared as yet to be your friend. It has been, so far, very sad and lonely for me. This is the first time I have been to this dear room since I came back from Blois. I had to keep myself well in hand and restrain your kindness. I was brutal to you. I had to offend you and huff you and make you disagreeable to me, because I knew so well that to talk and laugh with you would lead to other things and rouse your man's irritability and imperiousness. You men must always have things the way you want them. Well, you couldn't, quite, this time. It wouldn't have been decent. So I had to be a hard, matter-of-fact, slangy sort of person, don't you know, not let myself be in the least attractive to you as a woman. It is difficult, for it is fighting against one's instinct. I had to show you that I was sensible, not hysterical, and that I had managed to come out of that particular experience clear, scot-free, practically unchanged. I can't think why I'm such a poor thing now, though. I suppose the effort of repressing one's individuality for so long is exhausting, rather. She lay back and smiled at him. He turned his face away. I am not so sure of that, he said doggedly. Sure of what? You sound disagreeable. That you have got out of it so altogether scot-free. That's what I was coming to tell you. Don't look at me like that, Amy. Yes, I do mean to explain. Strange, though, that it should be left to me. I should have thought you... Dear Amy, you are not clear. Oh, please don't be mysterious. I can bear anything you choose to tell me. What can you know about me that I don't know myself? A little medical fact, apparently. I may be mistaken, but I think you are going to have a child. Nonsense! She flung her legs to the floor and stood up. Her brows met. Her face grew red with anger. He turned away. Well, you know best. 
of course i do it is impossible what you say how can you be so dreadfully crude there was a sharp note in her voice it's a crude thing to happen he returned gently don't you see though that if i am right that you cannot possibly leave me now can't i just she turned on him with sudden fury she called him brute and cruel as a tiger woman in the east end might do then tottered and fell forward on his breast dan stroked her dull hair and held her she murmured presently the force of her grim passion spent ah oh, couldn't i die before don't be a coward dear be yourself yet who am i to talk i who have been dosing myself with brandy for the last half hour before i could get up courage for this i don't wonder jeremy you have murdered me no i am not a murderer i am a man that is to say an ordinary selfish beast here hadn't you better lie down again no no keep on holding me i can't move i should see your face why not his tone was an endearment shy she muttered her mouth was buried in the lapel of his coat never before had she seemed so lovable he said so he vowed she should never go from him she must love him now this that all women suffer she must suffer for him who passionately loved cherished adored her her child should be as it were his only child he had never said so much to any woman before he felt her tears on his hand that her faint cheek rested upon dear amy she had been so cross on hearing his revelation but not half so sulky at any rate as edith had been when threatened with the like inconvenience the door opened slowly and mr johnson came in jeremy dan saw him well enough but either from pride or stupefaction did not alter his position he merely moved his head a little it may have been deprecatingly and so mr johnson understood it casting a glance of sympathy and adherence in his friend's direction the secretary left the room quietly closing the door behind him End of chapter 40 recorded by lisa reichert